Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. That's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, July 7th, 2022, the 533rd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to this episode on the day of its release. If you're doing that, it's because you're a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. If you're hearing it later, if you're seeing this episode over the weekend, then that means you're just slightly behind. If you want to catch up, subscribe on the Substack for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode. Plus you get all the writing when it's released and you get to support me and the work I do and this show if that's important to you. But enough about me. Let's talk more about Joe Rogan and Alex Berenson. So in terms of Rogan, I was thinking about this after the show yesterday and throughout the night and this morning. And I was trying to determine which of the options I presented yesterday were more explanatory for what we see from Joe Rogan. Is it that he's part of some grand plan? Is it that his $300 million contract with Spotify has him completely under control? 
Is he trying to walk his audience along slowly? Is he worried that all his very intellectual friends will call him crazy and try to cancel him? Or does he just really not know anything about the reality of the corruption and the compromise and the effort to undermine Donald Trump's presidency? And I really do have a feeling it's the last one, which should be almost hard to believe because Joe Rogan certainly has access to pretty much whoever he wants to talk to in the country. But in order for him to approach one of those conversations, approach one of those new people and try to have them on the podcast, he needs to know that those people exist and what they're talking about and why he might find that interesting. And I think there's a strong possibility that he doesn't know any of that. We know he's on Instagram. We know he's on Twitter. After Robert Malone was on his podcast, we know he joined Getter, but he hasn't posted on Getter in six months. So he's clearly not using it. And you have to wonder why. Maybe he thinks it's an echo chamber. Maybe that's what his friends on the left, the very smart people have told him. And to some extent, that's true. Getter doesn't have a presence from people on the left and neither does Truth Social. So to that extent, it might be an echo chamber. But Twitter is also an echo chamber and it is intentionally an echo chamber. It is made to be an echo chamber through the censorship and the shadow banning and the promotion of some posts and not others. So Twitter is an echo chamber for people addicted to the central narrative and people predominantly on the left, but they choose that they choose to exclude people from the platform getter and truth social and sites like gab don't exclude anybody. People in the mainstream and people on the left just don't engage. They don't sign up on those platforms. They are content with their echo chamber and they don't want to see what's happening in the other echo chamber and they have no incentive to find out. It'll just make them mad. They're told those platforms are full of crazy conspiracy theorists and they don't want to be a conspiracy theorist themselves. So they don't look. They assume everything there is wrong and dumb and nuts. They don't want to dirty themselves with Competing information. They are totally happy to exist within the central narrative. So Rogan is on Instagram and Twitter, and he probably gets his news from a news aggregator, or he has a small set of sites that he looks at. A few months ago, he talked about how he thought The Hill was kind of a down the center outlet, a very objective site where they present right and left. He thinks that Crystal and Cigar have their finger on the pulse of what's really going on. They're just the best. These are just straight up central narrative mainstream outlets. And Rogan thinks that they're kind of on the edge. And in the clip I played yesterday, he kind of explained this. He doesn't take the time to do the research. And that's fine. Rogan has a very entertaining show. People do learn a lot. It might pull leftists toward the middle, and that's probably helpful in some way. And every now and then he has guests on that will change the public conversation. And that's good, too. 
But you've got to remember that Rogan's show started with him just talking to comedians he's friends with and talking about subjects that he was interested in. And all of that is awesome. But there's also a lot of political talk on Joe Rogan's show, and it would be good. I believe he has the responsibility to find out if the things his guests are saying are true. But how is he going to do that? The only way to do that is by getting the feedback in that these things are not true. And he gets his information from Instagram and Twitter and probably a news app and the people in his lives. I'm not saying he is terribly uninformed. I'm saying he's terribly uninformed about a certain set of subjects. And they're the ones that the social media platforms and the news censor and ignore and avoid and try to shut down with debunkings and fact checks. So while Rogan is a smart and interesting guy who knows a lot about a range of subjects and can talk to pretty much anyone and has access to some truly brilliant people, his information environment is essentially the same one that a normal Hollywood actress would be in. And so the simplest explanation might just be garbage in, garbage out. He's not getting good information and it is dangerous for him to explore the other side. Obviously, he's seeing danger along the path somewhere. I, he doesn't strike me as a guy that wants to be ignorant of truly important subjects. But nonetheless, that's where we find ourselves. And he admits to that. And so I think what we're seeing is the result of someone being inside a closed information environment, being inside the bubble. And the limits of that bubble are controlled, honestly, legitimately by mega corporations. Instagram and Twitter decide what posts Joe Rogan sees when he goes on Instagram and Twitter. News apps are curated so that you see the news they want you to see. And they micro target that based on social media data and other data that we are freely giving to these companies. And then you have his employer, Spotify, paying him $300 million to do his show. And so they have a certain amount of control over what he's able to say. So he is being censored in multiple ways and doesn't seem to realize it. Or maybe more accurately, I could say he's being made a victim of censorship and doesn't realize it. Because it's not just about what they allow you to say. It's about what information they allow you to see in the first place. And along those lines, there was a great clip from War Room this morning that runs parallel to what I was talking about in part seven of the Who Is At Q series on Substack. It's called A Story About Reality. And I was basically discussing the idea that we have a whole segment of our society that is literally detached from reality. They have been fed a story for so long that nearly everything they know is false. They are not able to interpret the world as it exists in front of them. The Machina might ever crack a uh, staff here says, you know, outside of 10 Downing, if you pull the camera back, because it's got that beautiful door, if you pull the camera back, it's got a thousand reports. The whole world's there. Right, every BBC, NHK, all the networks, CNN, they're all following the door, but they got a picture. Somebody is playing the, um, was it not the Mighty Python? Benny, Benny Hill, my dad's favorite. Playing the Benny Hill song. You know why? It's, a, it's spoofing them and it's a joke and they're saying it's a joke of what's happening. The country's in an economic collapse, right? 
Their economy's worse shape than ours is. And they're talking about, you know, having a conference in a couple of weeks. It shows you the disconnect from the political class to reality. That's it. This is what we keep That's saying, it. that, that, that it, it's that it's that French, uh, it was a French poet who volunteered and was an officer at Verdun and was killed right away. I forget his name now. Killed immediately, died at Verdun. And he had a saying. He said, the important thing is not to come back into report of what you see. The most important thing in your life is to see what you see. That's what we try to do on the show so that you can see it. And that's why the propaganda exists. That's why the false reality exists. So that you refuse to see what you see. You refuse to give credit to what you see. You give credit to what the authorities say, what the television tells you. That's how you can know it's real. Empty shelves at your grocery store, gas lines, gas prices way too high. You see them in reality. And then you go look at CNN or MSNBC and oftentimes Fox. And they tell you that's not a real problem. You're having it on your own. And they isolate you. You would rather believe in the false reality where this stuff isn't a problem because the TV has made you feel crazy. And you say to yourself, well, I'm sure this is a problem. I can see the empty shelves over the 4th of July weekend. I was at the grocery store and they had these computer printed papers just stuck on the ends of the 12 packs of soda. You couldn't buy more than a certain amount of like a 12 pack of Coke or Dr. Pepper. They had limits on what you were able to buy for 4th of July. But you ignore that and people on Instagram and Twitter and the news that is curated onto your phone, they tell you this problem is not widespread. It's just you having it. And while you are having it, and it does kind of exist in some way, you got to understand none of it is our fault. In fact, it's Vladimir Putin's fault. And if you don't believe that, then you're a traitor to the country. Maybe you're a domestic terrorist. Maybe you're a Trump supporter or a QAnon. And so you ignore the reality in front of you because the story you're being told is convincing enough, at least by all the standards upon which you used to judge things. If everyone on both sides from the television or from the newspapers or on the social media platforms is saying the same thing and it's something different than what you're experiencing, well, you're going to side with them. I guess I'm just having an isolated experience. And you feel isolated because everyone else is engaged with the false reality and you don't want to be separated from everyone else. So you engage in the false reality with them. And for me, it makes the most sense to believe that that is what is going on with Joe Rogan. Now, again, I don't know Joe Rogan. I don't know his mindset. I don't know how he spends the day, but I'm certain I've listened to hundreds of episodes of his podcasts and each one of them is two or three hours long. He seems like a decent guy. He seems like an intelligent guy. He seems like a curious guy. So what options do we have? But let's talk about Alex Berenson for a second. I was poking around last night on the post that I had read on the show yesterday, and I was going through some of the comments. And it's funny because he's getting blown up by his own paid subscribers on Substack for lying to them. Apparently... He had started a GoFundMe 
to help out his legal fund in suing Twitter. He didn't want to use his own money. He would rather use everyone else's money. And as part of that effort to raise money, he promised them that he would take the suit to discovery so that they could all know what's actually going on at Twitter. And instead, he settled with Twitter. He took their money. He got his account back on Twitter and he signed an NDA. He has tens of thousands of subscribers on his Substack. Even if 10 or 20% of them are paying members, then he's making a pretty good monthly income from Substack. And of course, that's not his only source of income. So he sued Twitter and used his subscriber base to crowdsource the funding for his legal effort, promising to take Twitter to discovery. And instead, he took the money and got his account back. And now he's parading around like a champion of free speech, saying he kept his promises. Well, the commenters and his subscribers are not buying it. So I want to update something I talked about on Tuesday's show, which is the situation in Uruguay with the judge who demanded that Pfizer and the public health ministry turn over documents related to the COVID-19 vaccines. This is the headline from this afternoon. This is Merco Press. A judge in Uruguay has prohibited COVID vaccines for children. Health ministry complies with the ruling. And this story is being reported, of course, in multiple outlets. In a Montevideo court, Judge Alejandro Riqueri notified his final ruling on the appeal for protection filed to stop the vaccination against COVID-19 in minors under 13 years of age in Uruguay. As reported by local media, the magistrate ordered a provisional suspension of the inoculation in spite of the evidence presented in favor by the Ministry of Public Health. And some of the language is a little choppy here, probably because of the translation but I just will keep going as the article is printed. The ruling does not have suspensive effect. Therefore, although the MSP will appeal, the resolution will be maintained in this process. The defendants have three working days to appeal, then another three days to withdraw copies of the appeal, three more to answer and four days for the appeals court to rule in total between 20 and 30 days elapse. This means that the anti-COVID drug cannot be administered to children for approximately one month. In this scenario, after the appeal of the MSP, which is the Ministry of Public Health, a court will have to decide in the second instance. Presidential sources assured that measures are being evaluated at the highest level. The MSP assured that they will comply with the measure immediately and that they will issue a communique. In the ruling, the magistrate requested that all the contracts for the purchase of the vaccines be published in their entirety and without tests. And I imagine that that has something to do perhaps with redactions, maybe, but it's hard to understand exactly what they mean by without tests, as well as all documents attached to them, especially all those that have to do with the composition of the vaccine. In addition, it requested that a text be prepared to be delivered that informs, quote, completely and clearly, end quote, about the composition of the injectable substances, the benefits that the vaccine entails, the risks it has, detailing the nature, probability, magnitude and moment of occurrence, that it clarifies the substance has only emergency authorization and not definitive, 
explaining in simple terms what the difference those two types imply and that the adverse effects already detected are detailed in their entirety. The public health ministry issued a statement after Rickeri's ruling became known in which it officially confirmed that they will abide by the judicial resolution and that therefore, as of this Thursday, the vaccines against the disease will no longer be available for children under 13 years of age, quote, until further notice. In view of this ruling, the secretary of President Luis Lacal Pooh, Alvaro Delgado, delivered a press conference minutes later in which he stated that the government, quote unquote, respects science and justice. In spite of this assessment, the ruling, quote unquote, is nonsense, he qualified. The decision of this judge puts in the justice system the responsibility of the public health affectation of a number of minors in Uruguay who wanted to be vaccinated. These people are sick, pointed out the secretary of the presidency. In this sense, he commented that this Thursday, July 7th, there were 5,800 minors authorized to receive the second dose against COVID-19, many of them with comorbidities or medical prescription, he emphasized, in addition to those who could be vaccinated with the first dose. So it sounds to me like the result of what I was discussing on Tuesday, that the drug companies and the public health sector in Uruguay would have to deliver their papers and the documents and the information they had about the vaccines, its side effects, etc. And I suggested that they might fail to do this and at least delay. Sounds like that's exactly what's happened. The judge came down with a ruling against their position, but now they can ride the situation out for another 20 or 30 days before they even have to consider delivering all of the information requested. I guess the bet is by that time, the situation may change. They may figure out another way around this. And all it costs them is a month of not injecting Uruguayan children with the experimental gene therapy. And that's a worthwhile trade-off to them, it seems. They would rather keep that information under wraps for another month and forego the sales of the experimental gene therapy to Uruguayan children. It's amazing that the secretary of the presidency there thinks there are all these at-risk children that need the experimental gene therapy and that they should be allowed to have it because they want it. And I would suggest that something is wrong in Uruguay if their political leaders are suggesting that 13-year-olds should have the right to make their own decisions about being injected with an experimental gene therapy. But the truth is, We've heard politicians make that same argument in the United States as well. Also, in the world of the very safe and very effective vaccines, this is from The Telegraph on Tuesday. Excess deaths are on the rise, but not because of COVID. Hundreds more people than usual are dying each week in England and Wales with COVID not to blame for the majority of deaths. New figures show. Latest data from the Office for National Statistics show that there were 1,540 excess deaths in the week ending June 24th, but only around 10% were due to coronavirus. Health experts have called for an urgent investigation into what is behind the excess mortality, with fears that the pandemic response, lack of access to health care, and even the cost of living crisis may be to blame. But what's not to blame? 
for sure not the experimental gene therapy that they forced on their citizenry. Before the end of March, deaths in England and Wales were lower than usual this year, despite hundreds of people dying from COVID. Oh no, hundreds of people. Yet in the last three months, the situation has reversed, with overall deaths rising even though COVID deaths have been falling. Paul Hunter, professor in medicine at the University of East Anglia, said some of the excess could be people whose health was weakened by COVID. The infection is known to increase the risk of stroke and heart attacks, but he warned that there may be other more complex factors at play. Isn't that amazing? It's just long COVID. It's not the experimental gene therapy that loads you up with spike protein again and again and again. It's just that old COVID floating around in your system for a year or two years. And COVID has a side effect of stroke and heart attack. Not like the vaccine that also has the exact same side effects. And that's what the data shows everywhere. Can't be that. Some might also be down to other impacts of the pandemic, such as problems in accessing healthcare, delayed referrals for treatment, and then things related to the restrictions we lived under, such as reduced activity and sedentary lives, he said. And of course, people like me were warning about that in April of 2020, because what could be more obvious than the devastating effects that would have? Increases in alcohol abuse, drug abuse, child abuse, domestic abuse, anxiety, depression, isolation, loneliness, unemployment, hunger, poverty, and all sorts of missed medical screenings and treatments. All of that was obvious from the beginning. I was calling the lockdowns the greatest scientific, political, and moral mistake in human history in April of 2020. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. Back to the article and the very astute professor. I think the reality is going to be quite complex, but it's something we do need to be aware of and actually try and understand, which means they need to come up with a conclusion that is not the vaccines did it. We know there is a relationship between excess deaths and deprivation. So maybe the current financial situation we are in is exacerbating that there is despair from your livelihood disappearing up the Swanee. It doesn't have to lead to suicide. Chronic stress can lead to all sorts of problems. Seems like something they could have thought about before. Dr. Charles Levinson, the chief executive of the private GP company, Dr. Call, also called for a government inquiry into what was causing so many deaths at home. The ONS reported 752 excess deaths in the home in the latest week, 30% more than usual, and more than hospitals and care homes put together. This is exactly why a proper government investigation is required, he said. This is not just displacement from hospitals. I do not understand how this is not being properly discussed. Yeah, what could it be? Dr. Levinson added, the reasons behind these horrific numbers are complicated and none of us fully understand them. So that is exactly why there should be an urgent and comprehensive government inquiry. Yes, 
let the government figure out over the course of the next few years what could possibly be causing this problem. And they will come up with something that might allow for the possibility that the vaccines might have had some exacerbating effect, but it won't be the vaccines problem. And nonetheless, we should continue giving the vaccines for those next few years. It takes us to get to the conclusion of our very thorough investigation. If anything, the situation seems to be worsening, considering the relentless focus on one virus for more than two years, requesting answers from government on thousands and thousands of non-COVID excess deaths is entirely reasonable. Thanks, doctors and experts and journalists. You really got to the bottom of that. This is going to save people's lives. But hey, you remember what the rationale for all this was, right? Better safe than sorry. You might indirectly be responsible for the death of someone's grandmother, even though you will never be near that person's grandmother. So lock down, mask up, and let's get some shots in some arms. Now, also from the UK, updating the story from a couple of days ago, Boris Johnson has resigned as leader of the Conservative Party after all sorts of members of the British government began resigning in a what seems like a coordinated attempt to get Boris Johnson out of there. And what's being reported by the mass media is that he is stepping down as prime minister. And that doesn't seem to be entirely accurate. He's stepping down as his party leader, and apparently a new party leader will be chosen this fall. Until then, Boris is going to stay on as prime minister, and it's possible that he may stay on as prime minister after that as well. But Ben Harnwell was on War Room today trying to clarify some of this. And if I'm understanding him correctly, what he is saying about the British form of government is that. There is no mechanism to remove Boris Johnson from prime minister except by him stepping down and the queen agreeing. So I want to share a bit of that just to present a counter narrative to what we are being told by mass media. It would not be remotely surprising for the media to have messed this up completely. Media was wrong. He didn't resign as prime minister. And you know who told us this? The one and only Ben Harnwell. Ben, tell us exactly what's going on because the American media and quite frankly, some of the British media ha have had this completely back assward, as we say, uh, in the United States or ass backwards, however you want to say it, sir. Morning, Steve. Well, if Denver is able to start rotating through some of their headlines, which I sent through before, this is really a, a victory lap opportunity. Not that I'm up for gloating first thing on a Thursday morning. The, the reason is, and this is the reason why I've been saying that Boris Johnson would, if he were to leave, it would be on his terms. It's because there is no mechanism for Parliament to remove him as uh, Prime Minister. And neither, even less, is there any mechanism for a political party, that is, in this case, the governing party, the Conservative Party, to remove him. And one of the reasons for this is because, you know, Britain, Great Britain isn't a Johnny-come-lately um, European country that's been around for five minutes with, with, a constitute, with five constitutions um, every other minute. We, we've been a growing, progressing, 
um, parliamentary democracy over a thousand years. Um, and the prime minister, which isn't a constitutional office, the, the, technically the constitutional office is first lord of the treasury. But the prime minister is the queen's pr prime minister. He serves her. He, you know, technically, that is, he doesn't serve parliament. He doesn't serve the government. He doesn't serve the British people. He is the queen's first minister. Um, and therefore, the prerogative, the royal prerogative on who is prime minister is the queen's. Now, by convention... The worst, the, the easiest way, the nearest thing to, to arriving at what the press have been talking about, which, which is Boris Johnson being forced out as prime minister, the nearest way to get there is for the government to lose a vote of confidence in the House of Commons, in which case the Queen then takes the prime minister's advice as to whether the government should resign. You see, all, all, all um, the, the, the articles I sent through all, all said that... Um, uh, Boris Johnson has, has resigned as Prime Minister. Um, and that's not what has happened. Um, but I carry on talking as, 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 the, as the images um, circle around. The, 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 the easiest way to get there then is for the British government to lose a vote of confidence in the House of Commons. Um, and then, by convention, the Queen will ask the Prime Minister whether the government is going to resign or, we, or, um, or whether she should dissolve Parliament and call fresh elections. Now, the only two times in the 20th century, 1924, 1979, when a government lost a vote of confidence, uh, the Prime Minister recommended a general election. Um, and that's what happened. Um, yeah. So, he resigned as head of the Conservative he's Party. And, he's, and he resigned as, 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 as leader of the Conservative Party. And even the if, and even if in October, yeah, go ahead. Steve, this is important. Yep. This is really important, Mike. This is what all the, yep. the, the mainstream media is totally getting wrong. Even if in October this year, the Conservative Party elects a new leader, that does not necessarily mean that Boris Johnson would have to um, uh, quit as or be forced out or resign okay. as prime minister. So that version of events is Clearly not what we are being told by mass media from the United States or from Britain. But the coverage of the story does seem to run right alongside what appears to be a coordinated effort to strip power away from Boris Johnson. So in that regard, it completely makes sense. And since the mass media reports almost everything entirely wrong, it would not be surprising for them to have gotten this wrong as well. And I am certainly no expert in British government. So it surprised me to hear that the prime minister in some way simply serves the queen at the queen's pleasure. Our media projects the image that the prime minister is in some way the equivalent to the American presidency. It is their head of government. And we're told that the queen performs some sort of ceremonial role. She is the nation's figurehead, but not the head of government. But if the queen exerts that level of influence on who the prime minister is, wouldn't it seem like the queen has some role in the formalized parliamentary government? And I talk often about neo-feudalism, but we might still just be in feudalism in some sense. I wonder how much influence the Queen has over American government. 
Now, staying on the international frontier, I often talk about how I believe there is potential that India's Narendra Modi is representative of the good twin faction in India's government. And also we've discussed how India has joined the BRICS currency partnership, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. This is from Spectator on Monday, and the headline is Prime Minister Modi's Moment in History. As the war between Russia and Ukraine grinds on, rocket and artillery barrage after barrage, Russian battalion after battalion, atrocity after atrocity, the civilized world wonders when it will end and how. Right now, there may be only two people in the world with enough potential influence over Vladimir Putin, president of the Russian Federation, to end the war. President Xi Jinping of China and Prime Minister Narendra Modi of India. Both countries have deliberately refrained from condemnation of Russia's invasion, and both are opportunistically buying Russian oil at discounts of up to $40 per barrel. China and India represent markets of extraordinary value for the Kremlin. In February, Russia and China declared a limitless friendship. China values its partnership with Russia formed to end the so-called unipolar world and the rules-based order that has governed trade and investment since the end of World War II. India has valued Russia as a constant partner since it achieved independence in 1947. Unlike the U.S., Russia has been unconcerned with India's nuclear development. It has not alleged human rights violations, and it has not sponsored Pakistan. And as I have written in The American Spectator, quote, since 2010, India has been Russia's number one arms purchaser, end quote. And in the last five years, 46% of its arms imports were of Russian origin. Narendra Modi could be positioned with an historical opportunity, one rarely visited upon one man. Modi has access and credibility with Putin that he may use, if he wishes, to attempt to seek a diplomatic solution to the Russia-Ukraine war that has devastated Ukraine, shocked oil and commodities markets, disrupted global supply chains, and contributed to the now rampant inflation. Ah, Putin did it. Putin did it. India's potential influence with the Kremlin is derived from a platform of moral authority, as well as India's status as the world's second largest wheat producer. India's moral authority was demonstrated by the nonviolence movement called Ahimsa, Mohandas Karamchad Gandhi, otherwise known as the Mahatma, a Hindi term that means great soul. The passive resistance and civil disobedience that Gandhi sponsored ultimately led to the collapse of the British Raj the British engagement with India that started in 1600 with the formation of the East India Company. Indian independence was a catalyst for others to soon or eventually throw off the British colonial rule, such as Malaysia, Singapore, Burma, Nigeria, Ghana, and Kenya. India is an authority on world food markets with nearly half its workforce employed in agriculture. Besides being number two in wheat production, it is the second largest producer of sugar and rice in the world. With Ukrainian ports blockaded by the Russian Navy, the United Nations has cited Yemen, Somalia, South Sudan, and Afghanistan to be at risk of famine. 20 million tons of grain are reported to be blocked, almost as much as the entire Australian annual wheat production. 
And because of severe drought, India has announced that it is retaining wheat for domestic consumption and is unable at this time to assist foreign countries facing potential famine. This decision has made worse the international food security problems created by Russia, as India cannot now be an exporter of wheat. Indeed, in fiscal year 2022, India agricultural exports hit a record of over $50 billion, and many countries relied on India for wheat and other food grains. So who better than Modi could ask Putin to end the blockade and assist in demining the waters? No doubt India's moral authority and status in world agriculture are descriptive or optical factors, but so is the nature of diplomacy itself, where form is also substance. Modi now has a strategic moment to decide, as in the poem of James Russell Lowell that became an Anglican hymn known as Ebenezer. India may continue to maintain a very limited role while the U.S. and NATO bear the diplomatic brunt of a future solution, or it may use its status as a longstanding friend and client state of Russia to mediate or apply diplomatic pressure to the Kremlin. There are definite risks should Modi attempt to influence the Kremlin. First, being rebuffed would be humiliating, although the diplomatic approach could be through unobserved back channels. Second, while unproven by accessible data, there is some support for Russia by the Indian public. Third, NATO and the U.S. might not like India inserting itself into the arena where they thus far have failed both with diplomacy and with sanctions. Modi's approval rating, based on a very recent estimate reported by the Times of India, is 67%. Not since Jawaharlal Nehru has an Indian prime minister been so exceptionally popular. So Modi has domestic political capital that he could use with Putin as a confidant, mediator, and client. For the period of 10 years ending in 2021, Russia's export of arms to India reached nearly $23 billion. While Russia will need to rebuild its badly depleted military assets, it will still need to export weapons for influence and money. Mediation by Modi may be a long shot, but so was overthrowing the British Raj. And so, again, this is a relationship to watch and to focus on, and it is going to be important to see where Modi exists in the hierarchy of sovereign national leaders. I think we have good reason to doubt that he's going to go out of his way in any regard to help the U.S. or its European allies. And very little chance that they're going to help out NATO, for instance, in any way that threatens their relationship with Russia and their partnership in the new currency bloc. So let's bring it back to American shores. This is from this morning from CBS News. House Republican says Treasury won't hand over Hunter Biden documents unless Democrats join the request. So Democrats now have veto rights over requests for information from congressional committees and members of Congress. That's just great. A House Republican accused the Treasury Department in a letter Wednesday of running interference for the White House in an effort to stymie efforts to investigate Hunter Biden's finances. 
Representative James Comer, the ranking member of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, cited a June 13th phone call in which Treasury officials informed committee Republican staff that they will not provide SARs to committee Republicans unless Democrats join the request. Now, an SAR is a suspicious activity report. Treasury is refusing to release suspicious activity reports connected with Hunter Biden or his family and associates, including the president. Comer wrote in his letter to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Comer first requested records related to potential suspicious activity reports, known as SARs, on May 26th and gave the department a deadline of June 8th. He said in his letter Wednesday that the Treasury has yet to turn over the documents. Suspicious activity reports are filed by financial institutions when clients make large cash transactions or transfers that could signal criminal activity, such as tax evasion or money laundering, although many such transactions are not improper. A Treasury Department official said in an email to CBS News Wednesday that Treasury provides SARs to Congress in a manner that enables robust oversight and that is consistent with how other sensitive law enforcement information is often produced. It is not a political process. Since the beginning of this administration, Treasury has made SARs available in response to authorized committee requests and continues to engage on the process with any individual members seeking information, the official said. The Treasury did not address questions sent by CBS News about Comer's claim that the agency is requiring Democrats to join his request before it will release records related to Hunter Biden. Comer wrote in his May letter that House Republicans are investigating Hunter Biden and other Biden associates and family members to determine whether their business dealings compromise U.S. national security and President Biden's ability to lead with impartiality. Under previous administrations, members of Congress could request copies of SARs, but Comer wrote that House Republicans are also investigating why that access has been restricted. Congressional staffers can now only review those records in person and cannot make copies. Committee Republicans are investigating whether this change in longstanding policy is motivated by efforts to shield Hunter Biden and potentially President Biden from scrutiny, Comer wrote. Comer's May letter cited a CBS News report that more than 150 financial transactions involving the global business affairs of either Hunter Biden or the president's brother, James Biden, were flagged as concerning by U.S. banks for further review. Large wire transfers were among the transactions flagged. Comer's May request was for all SARs generated in connection with Hunter, other members of the Biden family and their business partners. He also requested all documents and communications related to the Biden administration's decision to restrict Congress's access to suspicious activity reports. In Wednesday's letter, he also asked the Treasury Department for records that might otherwise be destroyed pertaining to Biden family finances since the president's inauguration on January 20th, 2021. Comer's requests appear to provide the underpinnings for probes the committee would pursue if Republicans take control of the House following November's elections. Comer has said the committee will investigate Hunter Biden, even if a federal investigation out of the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware does not lead to charges. A 2019 federal subpoena obtained by CBS News shows the criminal probe in Delaware has sought Hunter and James Biden's bank records dating back to 2014, when Joe Biden was vice president. 
President Biden has said he was not involved in the business dealings of his son and brother. And he went even further than that. He said he has never discussed business with his son, Hunter Biden. I have not taken a penny from any foreign source ever in my life, Biden said in October 2020 at a presidential debate. In April, White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain reiterated that the president was not involved in his son's business. These are actions by Hunter and his brother. They're private matters. They don't involve the president, and they certainly are something that no one at the White House is involved in, Klain said. So it seems like the Biden administration's policy is that unless the request comes from the committee with the approval of the majority members, the request is simply ignored. And if you apply that across the spectrum of unfulfilled requests we've seen for information so far in the last year and a half, we can see that that might be exactly what they intend to do. This allows them to cover everything up until the other party is in the majority. So at minimum, they're buying themselves another five months. But of course, they expect the rigged elections to be decided in their favor. And if that happens and they apply the same principles once again, that means that congressional members of the minority party simply are no longer entitled to information the federal government has, making oversight difficult, if not impossible. And along the same lines, Julie Kelly has a new little thread on Twitter about other efforts for the Democrat Communist Party to cover up information that might expose their corruption. She writes, breaking, Adam Schiff files amendment to NDAA, that's the National Defense Authorization Act, that would conceal any info collected by the U.S. military for use in congressional investigations or court proceedings. Massive attempted cover-up of enormous proportions and preemptive power grab to prevent GOP oversight next year. And she shares some of the text of that amendment. This is the addition. Notwithstanding any other provision of law, any information obtained by or with the assistance of a member of the armed forces in violation of Section 1385 of Title 18 shall not be received in evidence in any trial, hearing or other proceeding in or before any court, grand jury, department, officer, agency, regulatory body, legislative committee or other authority of the United States, a state or a political subdivision thereof. And Julie Kelly goes on. Think about what this means. Defense Secretary Austin can decline any requests for materials related to deadly Afghanistan withdrawal, woke policies, vaccine mandates or injuries, and January 6th, among other issues. For example, GOP committees would be prevented from examining the military's role in the events of January 6th, including the use of assets before and on that day, as well as the use of intelligence services such as NCIS, which we know were part of the investigatory process. What are they trying to hide? And I would add to that that it sounds to me like they might be interested in preventing any information derived from Space Force from being involved in any of this as well. You remember Space Force was made an intelligence agency and many people, including myself, 
think that Space Force may play a large role in the exposure of all of this due to their status as an intelligence agency and due to the fact that they operate in the space space, which we can assume means they have something to do with satellites and the transmission of information across those satellites. So let's move from Republicans being impotent to Republicans being downright awful. This is from the Washington Examiner today. Pennsylvania GOP lawmakers back Democrat Shapiro for governor over Mastriano. A group of prominent Pennsylvania Republicans broke ranks with their party this week to endorse Democrat Josh Shapiro in his gubernatorial bid over their party's nominee, State Senator Doug Mastriano, who many fear is too extreme to win independent and mainstream Republican support in November's election. Now, right there, that is already nonsense. Washington Examiner is very much part of the GOP establishment, so it's no surprise to see them presented this way. But they are saying that the Republicans are worried that their candidate is too extreme to convince voters to vote for him. Therefore, they as Republicans are going to convince those same voters to vote for the other guy. That makes absolutely no sense. Shapiro, Pennsylvania's attorney general, rolled out endorsements from former reps Charlie Dent and Jim Greenwood, ex-Montgomery County Republican Party chairman Ken Davis, and one-time state Supreme Court Justice Sandra Schultz Newman. Also endorsing Shapiro over Mastriano were former Lieutenant Governor Robert Jubelerer, ex-State House Speaker Dennis O'Brien, Lawrence County Commission Chairman Morgan Boyd, and a pair of former state representatives, Dave Stile and Lita Cohen. The group constitutes a notable fracture among Republicans, with prominent elected officials and political operatives encouraging voters to split their tickets to back Shapiro, but support Republicans in other races, including the Republican Senate nominee, television personality Dr. Oz. Craig Snyder, a former chief of staff to the late Senator Arlen Specter, who will run the political operation for the group Republicans for Shapiro, told the Philadelphia Inquirer that Mastriano is unacceptable. You can withhold support from Mastriano without declaring yourself to be a progressive, Snyder said. So basically, we have a mini Lincoln project in Pennsylvania working against a mini Trump in Doug Mastriano. Josh Shapiro is the guy who said that Joe Biden would definitely win after all the votes in Pennsylvania were counted. Josh Shapiro has worked tirelessly to make sure that Pennsylvania can't get to the bottom of the election maladministration in Pennsylvania. And Rhino Republicans all over Pennsylvania have aided in that effort to make sure that the 2020 election and the gift of a win to Joe Biden is preserved. Mastriano won Pennsylvania's Republican gubernatorial nomination earlier this year, despite a last ditch effort by some state Republicans to coalesce the field around a different candidate they felt would fare better against Shapiro. And once again, the political lie is right in there. What they don't want is Mastriano in there because Mastriano is going to investigate them. Their interest is holding on to establishment power and never having 
election fraud and maladministration exposed. Mastriano, a staunch supporter of former President Donald Trump, backed baseless claims that the 2020 election was stolen. Mastriano attended both a QAnon-linked event in Gettysburg and the Washington, D.C. rally that took place before the January 6th Capitol riot, using campaign funds to bus supporters to Washington that day. Mastriano also frequently barred media from his campaign events in the final days of the race. After he secured the nomination, nonpartisan election analysts changed the race's rankings from toss-up to lean Democrat. Ooh, I guess that must be predictive of reality. The Republican Governors Association in May offered a tepid statement about Mastriano's win that said the group, quote, remains committed to engaging in competitive gubernatorial contests where our support can have an impact in defending our incumbents and expanding our majority this year without specifying whether Mastriano would be one of those candidates it works to support. And the Republican Governors Association is run by people like Doug Ducey and features people like Brian Kemp. Pennsylvania is a key battleground state, and its open gubernatorial seat will soon be vacated by Democratic Governor Tom Wolf, who is term limited. So what are we being shown? We're being shown that the rhino establishment, the Republican establishment, cares more about its self-preservation and legitimacy than it cares about the Republican agenda or what the citizens of Pennsylvania actually want. And of course, this is true around the country. There are rhinos in every state. They are literally recruited as Democrats to run as Republicans. They just put the little R next to their name and they expect people will vote for them. But what they're really doing is campaigning for Josh Shapiro, someone who not only supports the election apparatus, but supports the full progressive and global communist agenda. And these people with the R next to their names are telling us that that is the only responsible choice. We can't have these extremists and QAnons in there, even if that's what the people want. And because we fully plan on stealing the election, we need to create a story to explain why someone like Josh Shapiro could actually win, even though there is a Republican surge across the country and in Pennsylvania, especially. There should be no question that the Republican establishment does not care about the will of the people whatsoever. And you have to wonder why they feel so comfortable. And finally, I've covered pensions and pension deficits pretty regularly on the show over the last couple of years, but not in a while. Today, an article from Fox Business, Biden's union pension bailout, what it means and will it work? Oh, more money given away to incompetent Democrat governors. The Biden administration unveiled details this week of the final rules surrounding the federal bailouts of hundreds of union pension plans passed as part of Democrats one point nine trillion dollar American Rescue Plan Act coronavirus relief package last year, saying it will secure workers benefits for decades to come. Can't lose the unions, can you? 
ARPA's special financial assistance program injects $90 billion of taxpayer funds into the federal government's pension benefit guarantee corporation, which ensures private sector pensions. Prior to the passage of the purported COVID package, the PBGC was set to become insolvent in 2026. The White House claims the plan will prevent two to three million workers from having their pension payments cut in retirement by saving upwards of 200 private sector union plans that had been in danger of insolvency. President Biden touted the accomplishment during a speech in Ohio on Wednesday, saying that retirees in the shaky plans who have already seen cuts in benefits will have them restored retroactively and that he, quote, turned a promise broken into a promise kept. All it took to fix incompetence and malfeasance was $90 billion of taxpayer money. So the Democrats are bailing out people who support them. I guess it's slightly better than sending $55 million over to Ukraine when the $55 million never actually reaches Ukraine. Where, oh, where does all the money go? Turning the fake president's broken promises into promises kept just costs $90 billion of American taxpayer money. That is the price for Democrats to hold on to their union support. We saw before the pandemic and the economic crisis that followed, Biden said, Millions of retirees were at risk of losing their retirement security through no fault of their own, based on conditions and unrelenting attacks on unions that were taking place. Uh, those were conditions imposed by incompetent Democrats. But some pension experts are skeptical of the plan and are raising concerns. One sticking point is that the rules have changed to allow one third of the taxpayer provided funds to be invested in stocks which according to the Wall Street Journal overrides a previous restriction that generally limited them to investment grade bonds. So perhaps the fake president will just take that American taxpayer money and invest it in companies that partner with the illegitimate administration and the global communist order. I guess we'll have to find out which stocks they go ahead and purchase. In response to the plan, University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business professor Dr. Olivia Mitchell, executive director of the school's Pension Research Council, tweeted, spare me. She called the move risky and said it is unlikely to keep the multi-employer plan solvent through 2051, despite White House optimism. Derek Kreifels, CEO of the State Financial Officers Foundation, noted that the pension funds were in trouble long before the pandemic, asserting the move was political and a gamble for taxpayers and union workers alike. The White House is going to allow the same pension fund managers who have been historically awful at their jobs the ability to make riskier investments with not only hardworking Americans pensions, but also the nearly hundred billion dollars worth of taxpayer dollars delivered to unions under the guise of covid relief. Kreifels told Fox Business, he added, in truth, this is a disaster of the Biden administration's own making, putting millions of Americans retirements at risk with terrible economic policies that are reverberating throughout every facet of our lives, from the gas pumps to the grocery stores. 
Ryan Frost, a policy analyst at Reason Foundation's Pension Integrity Project, says whether the bailout and its new rules will work is a mixed bag. Obviously, it will work for these retirees as they'll no longer be facing benefit cuts as the PBGC runs out of money. But there are zero safeguards in place to prevent the plans from running out of money again, he said. In fact, the bill even modifies the PBGC guarantee formula to increase the maximum potential benefits the retiree can receive. Frost says the question is what the trade-off will be for the U.S. taxpayer to bail out these private pensions. The plans will now be projected to reach 80% funded in 30 years using some unknown discount rate that is going to vary between each plan, he told Fox Business. Congress needs to come back next year and put some safeguards and strings around plans who accept this money so they don't drop further into insolvency, risking pension cuts and requiring another financial assistance program stuck into a $1.9 trillion budget package. So essentially, we're throwing good money after bad. The pension investment funds bottom out. The pension investment funds don't seem to be able to fulfill their requirements, to fulfill their promises to workers. When workers agree to take a pension, that is basically trading upfront salary for long-term security. They are promised that after they stop working a certain number of years, They will continue to receive some portion of their salary for a number of years or potentially the rest of their lives. They are foregoing upfront income for what they are promised is long-term financial security. The problem comes when those programs continue to expand and the number of workers continue to expand. And then if there is any problem with the investments of these pension funds, the whole system begins to break down. And this is true of public sector unions as well. And we saw in prior COVID bailout packages that some of that bailout money went directly to states to erase their pension deficits. American taxpayers are funding these pensions because the institutions in the public and private sector where the employees are represented by the unions are unable to fulfill the promises they made to these employees when the employees agreed to the pensions. The unions overwhelmingly support Democrats and they have influence over the union members to support Democrats as well. Therefore, Democrats can't afford to lose the support of unions or their employees. So they make it a priority to take American taxpayer money and bail out their supporters, which is just another case of the taxpayers being forced to bear the burden of the incompetence and malfeasance of those with power. Shocking. I know I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!